As a small business owner, I've had my share of accounting, tax, bank feed, and app issues. Some could say I'm a mess, kind of like some of your clients. But as I reflect on the last three years of my business, the one app that I've had not any problems with is OnPay. It's been set it and forget it payroll. Stay tuned to hear more from our sponsor, OnPay, later in the episode. All right, let's talk about other organizations that lack internal controls. Let's talk about the Maryland Health Department. According to an article in the Washington Post, an audit of the Maryland Department of Health revealed that the organization, the department, failed to properly track federal reimbursements during the pandemic, resulting in over $1 billion in unaccounted funds. $1.4 billion is unaccounted for. Coming to you weekly from the OnPay Recording Studio. Hello, and welcome back to the show. I'm Blake Oliver. I'm David Leary. David, let's talk about loan forgiveness, but this time we're not talking about student loans. We're talking about a loan to a very prominent individual, Clarence Thomas, Supreme Court Justice. There was a story today, not today, this past week in the Wall Street Journal, about a loan that Clarence Thomas received $267,230 $267,230 that's how much money Clarence Thomas borrowed from a friend and apparently according to a senate report may have never repaid I'm having a hard time with the number here I just got a $230,000 from a friend did you ever see the uh, 60 minutes report on Clarence Thomas, where he's driving around the country in a luxury motorhome. Did you know this about him? I think this no. is actually this is actually one of the most endearing things about Clarence Thomas, is that his favorite thing in life is driving around America in this big RV with his wife, and they go and they they talk to normal Americans, right? They hang out in Walmart I think I, parking I think lots. I, I, some, I, I, yes, I think I remember something about like sleeping in the Walmart parking lots in the RV. Like I feel like I've in my brain. Okay. Got it. Yeah. Now, it's not quite what an average American would experience because this RV, when it was purchased in 1999, was worth today about half a million dollars. So this is a luxury apartment on wheels. It's it's what I aspire to someday, David. This is my goal in life is I want to make enough money where I can just buy one of these things. Does he have a driver or does he drive it? He drives it. And on the 60-minute oh. report, he's driving around um, cool. and you know they talk to him about this experience. But anyway, the question is, you know, where did he get this RV on a Supreme Court salary? Because that's a lot of money for a Supreme Court justice. I don't have offhand what they make, but I I don't think it's nearly half a million dollars a year. And the Senate has been investigating Clarence Thomas ever since these ProPublica reports came out about his cozy relationships with these uh, very wealthy Republicans, um, billionaires, and now they're investigating him. And so this is something that I'm bringing up here because there's an accounting and tax question here. So the Senate is suggesting that Clarence Thomas never repaid this quarter million dollar loan he received um, from uh, Anthony Welters, a friend and fellow figure in the black conservative movement. And it looks like he may have made one or more interest payments. And then at a certain point, the loan was forgiven. Anthony Welters just forgave the loan. And you might think, okay, well, whatever, right? No big deal. Well, 
here's where it gets tricky, and here's where Clarence Thomas could get in trouble. Loan forgiveness, according to the Internal Revenue Service, is income because all income uh, is reportable unless it is specifically excluded. So loan forgiveness is income, and it's it's not just the tax code. It's also accounting principles uh, that say that loan forgiveness is income. So David, do you want to do a little debits and credits with me? I mean, before we do that, like I kind of understand this because back in the day, I don't know, either I settled a credit card balance, I settled a debt at one time, and I got a 1099 for the difference. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So yep. so when you receive a loan, you got a debit cash. That's the cash you received, which increases cash, and you credit a liability account, note payable, loan payable, something like that. Now, let's say you're going to write off that loan. You got to get it off the books, right? Well, you credited the liability account in order to increase it. That means to decrease it, you have to debit the liability account. So you debit your loan payable, and then you have to credit something. You have to balance this entry. And what are you going to credit? Income. It's an increase in income. And if Clarence Thomas did not report that as income on his taxes, I wonder if that's how they, they get them. It's always the IRS that ends up getting people, right? Yeah, at the end of the day, yes. Yes. Right? And failure to report income is the biggest mistake you can make when it comes to dealing with the IRS. You you can increase your deductions. You can take deductions that, you know, maybe you shouldn't have, and then they'll come back and say, no, you shouldn't have done that. But nobody's going to put you, generally, you're not going to go to jail for you know, taking improper deductions, you're just going to get fines and penalties and interest, right? Unless because it's I, and I couldn't even see egregious. the argument in a court of law. I'm like, oh, it's confusing the deductions. I messed up. But I think the law of income is pretty black and white. Like income is income. You got to declare it. Right. right. So that worst thing you can do is not report income. And, and I, you know, I don't know. I don't know if this will end up being an issue in that regard. But it's also an issue because he apparently didn't report this income, this loan forgiveness on his forms that he's required to file as a federal judge. So that's the other issue. So there's your tax connection in politics this week. I've got more though. It's not just Clarence Thomas that's in the news. Of course, we've got the ongoing Trump trial in New York state, Letitia Jones prosecuting that civil case against Trump for artificially inflating his valuations of assets in order to improperly get business loans. And we had some testimony from Michael Cohen, who I haven't heard about for a while. Michael Cohen was on the stand and testified that Trump instructed him to inflate the assets of the Trump organization. He and Trump organization's then CFO, Alan Weisselberg, were tasked with, quote, reverse engineering asset valuations to match Trump's self-perception as a successful businessman. Now, there's this question in the trial, which I think is totally legitimate, about valuation. If you give two people the task of valuing a building or really any asset, you're always going to get different answers. And so because of this leeway, the question is, well, okay, maybe Trump, you know, erred on the high side, but does that constitute fraud? Does that cause harm to the banks? Does that cause harm to the insurance companies? That sort of thing. So that's that's what Letitia James is going to, I think, struggle with proving. It might be difficult. Now, in some cases, it's really obvious where the square footage of the penthouse apartment was 10,000 or 11,000 and not 30,000, as 
yeah. was reported by the Trump organization. That's just completely wrong, right? But the question is, does this rise to that level where hundreds of millions of dollars over um, across many, many properties, like that is something that she is going to have to prove in order to get big fines, I think. Is this a victimless crime? Like if the banks loaned the money and the banks got paid back, like, is it a, is where is there, a, I'm saying, is there not a crime? Obviously he defrauded the banks to get the loans, but I, I just, you're right. Like, I don't see how strong of a case this could be just the overvaluation stuff. Well, what you're bringing up is the question of harm. If there was yeah. no harm to these banks, then is there really a crime? And that is something that, I'm no lawyer, obviously, but yeah. that's something that in like a criminal case you have to have. Somebody has to be a victim in order for there to be a case. I don't know if that's the same in a civil trial. Yeah. Could the fraud just perpetrated broadly and across years and years constitute enough to you know, be a, a crime uh, that is worthy of a civil penalty? I don't know. We'll find out. Anybody we have a question. in the chat know? <laughs> yeah, let us know. If, you are, if you're a, an attorney in the chat, let us know. Uh, welcome, everyone. Thanks for joining us, Trevor and Daniel in the chat. Uh, Daniel says, when does the loan mature, indefinite loan term? So that's a good question. This goes back to that Clarence Thomas loan. Uh, so the loan had a term of some years. I don't remember exactly how many. And it was interest only. And then after that, there was going to be some sort of balloon payment. And at, the, at some point during those interest-only payments the principal on the loan was forgiven completely. So Clarence Thomas apparently, according to what we know from the Senate report, did not pay back the principal on this loan, only made some interest payments. And we don't know how many of those he made. Yeah, it's, everything's questionable. There was another wrinkle in the Trump trial this past week. Ellen Weisselberg was on the stand and Forbes while he was on the stand, Forbes.com published a report saying that he had lied on the stand as he was testifying, which then caused the prosecution to not bring him back after lunch. And, and the reason Forbes got involved in this is because Forbes publishes that list of the richest people, which Trump has been on for years and years and years. And Forbes said that Weisselberg played a significant role in trying to convince Forbes that Trump's penthouse was worth more than its actual value, which contradicts his courtroom statements that he never focused on the property, considering it a minor asset in Trump's overall financial statement. So that's not something that you want as the prosecutor yeah. to happen while, you're, while your guy is on the stand testifying against the person you're trying to prosecute. You don't want him being accused of perjury. And this has to do with the uh, penthouse square footage thing going on. Now, there was one more witness who took the stand in the Trump trial, uh, Doug Larson. So Trump, the Trump organization said that the building valuations were determined through phone cons conversations with him. But then Larson got on the stand to say that those conversations never took place. He's a former executive at commercial real estate firm Cushman and Wakefield. And he said that the Trump organization's claims of his involvement in the valuation process were, quote, inappropriate and inaccurate, unquote. He also mentioned that he was never informed that he would be cited as a source for these valuations. And he suggested that the valuation numbers were derived from a generic email that he sent to his clients. Larson insisted that official appraisals should have been conducted on the buildings. So that is your update on the trial when it comes to these valuations. 
And um, I don't know. We'll see what happens. We'll keep you posted. So speaking of fraudulent claims, the IRS this last week, they've announced that they are now going to have a process so people can withdraw bogus ERC claims. So maybe a mill filed your paperwork, but maybe it hasn't uh, gotten through yet because obviously they, they've stopped processing all the claims and they're going to come out the process to do it. But the great news is we at Earmark are going to do a webinar on this on November 1st. So anybody listening, November 1st, 12.30 p.m. Pacific, we're doing a webinar on how to withdraw ERC claims for your clients. So awesome. attend that webinar. It's from the host of the Federal Tax Update um, with our Earmark webinars platform, but definitely come to that. Um, so so I want to highlight that, David. So yeah. for our listeners who don't know, we produce a podcast called Federal Tax Updates featuring Roger Harris and Annie Schwab of Paget. Excellent show. They talk all about federal tax every couple of weeks, and they are the ones hosting this webinar. So they are the experts. Roger has testified in front of Congress, like, really experienced. So we'll put that link in the um, show notes. And David has just dropped that link into our live stream. Yeah. And Roger was in DC discussing all this with the IRS before they made the final announcement. So he's highly involved knowledge about this. So if anybody has the ability to do a webinar on this, it's Roger. So uh, hopefully, uh, if anybody needs to understand how, which of their clients you can withdraw, the step-by-step instructions, right? How to get more help on it. Uh, it'll all be in that webinar. So- I don't want to steal their thunder, David, but yeah. I did go on to the website where the IRS explains how to do this. Yeah. And I just have to highlight how this process works because it's very much how you would think the IRS would set this <laughs> yeah. up. Yeah. Okay. So you have to print out a copy of the adjusted return with the claim you wish to re- withdraw. So a copy of the 941X, okay, the one that you filed. And then in the left margin of the first page, you have to write withdrawn in the left margin, like with a marker or a pen. And then in the right margin of the first page, going like top to bottom sideways on the paper, you have to write your name and title and sign and date it. And then you have to fax the signed copy of your return to a number. This is the process that the IRS has come up with. We don't have time to make a new form. So here's what we do. We notice we have this white (laughs) space in the margins. And we'll just pretend that's two fields. There's the field on one side and the field on the other. I mean, (laughs) could they not have set up some sort of form on a website that accomplishes this? I mean, maybe it's easier to just have all the information in one place. But like, seriously, a fax? Like have a form and allow people to upload a copy of their original document and sign it. And what happens if you put withdraw on the right co- the right margin? Yeah. Like, right? What if you write it in the top and not on the side? Like, are you going to lose your withdrawal request or something like that? So these are questions you could ask at the webinar. Like, go to the webinar and you can ask these questions. Like, like who designs these processes? I would go nuts if I was a tax pro. I, w- I would just, like, not be able to handle the insanity of this. I already get frustrated enough, and I get to live in the world of cloud. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by OnPay. OnPay is built for accountants, and with 30-plus years of payroll experience, they can be the payroll partner you can always rely on. They offer a dashboard to manage all your clients in one place, and when I say manage, I probably should say balance that fine line between control and delegation. OnPay lets you keep 100% control, 
You can delegate payroll to someone at your firm or hand off payroll duties to your client. But no matter who runs payroll, OnPay always takes care of all tax payments and filings, even local filings. And with integrations with QuickBooks Online, Xero, and QuickBooks Desktop, you can use OnPay across your entire client base regardless of the accounting GL they are using. OnPay's partner program offers free payroll for your firm, discounts or a rev share, and a dedicated support team of in-house payroll experts who will do all the heavy lifting. From setting up your dashboard to adding your clients and their employees, they'll even enter any prior wages to make it easy to switch. If you're looking for a great product with great support to match, check out OnPay. To learn more about switching your clients to the award-winning OnPay Payroll and HR, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash OnPay. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash O-N-P-A-Y. OnPay, switch to better payroll. All right, David, I'll let you pick the next one. We're done with current events. Right, That's not even a current event. It's just, it's, it's staring me in the face and it's driving me crazy. So, cause I want to ask you this question. Okay. So this is a, an article. It was in a payments.com, P-Y-M-N-T-S.com. And it's based on a survey they did that's called how consumers want to live in the voice economy. And, and frankly, like it's just all crap. Who cares? But there's a stat in here, which is just blowing my mind. Now, Blake, you are the most connected millennial I know. You got your series, you got your your Apple Watches, you got your Alexa, you got all this stuff, right? Your Google Voice, you got all this stuff connected in. And this one of the survey results says that 30% of US millennials use a voice assistant to pay bills. And I'm I'm thinking there is absolutely no way. That doesn't matter. You ever make paid a bill me. with your voice assistant? No. All right, that's it. Done. We don't have to talk about it anymore. I just want to confirm that. I was like, there's no way 30% are paying bills using a voice assistant. Yeah, that's that study doesn't doesn't pass the smell test to me. Cause I, I I don't even know what what app can do that reliably to pay the bill. Yeah. I don't buy it. I mean, you can make I'd be surprised if you could actually get Alexa or Siri to be like, remind me on October 15th to pay the bill. And I don't know if that'll work. Never mind actually pay the bill. Well, it's going to get a lot better soon because Apple is, of course, working on their own AI. And Apple never is the first mover. They're always the second or third or fourth. Yes. They do it really well. And I would not be surprised if Siri will integrate with banks and pay bills for us. Well, they have their own bank. I mean, Apple's got- Oh, yeah. Apple Card or Apple Card. Yeah. Goldman Sachs, Apple Pay, all that good stuff. So yeah, maybe very soon you'll be able to say just, you know- pay this bill and it'll do it. David, we got a review. We haven't been asking for reviews. Maybe we should. I want to read this review. I'm very honored by it. I didn't see this one come in, so I can't wait to see it. This says, I'm too obsessed. Five stars. So glad to have discovered this show from the debunking the IRS drama in the Barbie movie to covering fascinating Intuit AI developments. David and Blake are the resource for all things accounting. Tune in for valuable insights from excellent guests and easy-to-consume conversations on the latest news in the CPA space. You won't regret it. That's from Arlie LP via Apple Podcasts. Thank you, Arlie. Thank you for the review. And if you, dear listener, would like to leave us a review, we very much appreciate them. You can do that on Apple Podcasts. Just scroll down on our show page to the review section. Give us a star rating. Write a review. We will read it on the air. Hey, if you think there's a way we can improve, 
go ahead and stick that in your five-star review. And uh, <laughs> Just keep the five stars in it, though, when you write that. <laughs> I mean, I'm very pleased with our rating. I haven't checked it in a while, but it's, uh, you know, it's, it's up there. I think it's better than my Uber uh, rating. <laughs> so... Does Apple let people change the rating? I don't know. Like an Amazon review, like later on you could say like, okay, I've had this product now in 90 days and I want to change the rating. Okay. The ratings are really helpful. They um, help surface our show to other accountants and our listenership is way up over the last few months. So I think you like what we're talking about and the topics we're covering. Um, we are today, I think, number 17 on the Apple business news charts right up there with shows by the Wall Street Journal and The Economist and NPR and our friends over at Bloomberg Tax and Accounting Today. So thank you everyone for listening and for making this show something that David and I can do as a job, which is uh, so much fun. I get to read accounting news for a living. Do I want to talk about other things that are hot, that are important to you? Do you want to shift to something else? What, what, what would be important to me? You love remote work stories. I do. I didn't and bring any this week, though. Your child loves Roblox, right? He is addicted to Roblox. And my goal in life is to channel that addiction into him learning how to code Roblox games so I can get him off the family payroll. Well, Roblox lasted in May of 2022. They pretty much told all their employees they could primarily work remotely. But now, recently, they've rolled that back. And to the point where they've told uh, employees they have to come to the office three days a week or take a severance package. A lot of companies have been doing this, like the, the bait and switch. Yeah. And they're using this. Um, they didn't specify how many, but they're basically reaching out to remote employees and trying to figure out how to get them to come into the headquarters in San Mateo, California. So, this, so is this a, like, is it just a extra lever? Like, hey, we're going to lay off people anyways, but let's use this as a a way to hammer people to kill our remote work and hybrid models. Lots of companies are trying to do this. I don't think it's going to work. There's just too much leverage on the employee side right now with the talent shortage across every single profession, especially when you're talking about developers. The most talented people, the all-stars will get to do whatever they want indefinitely, sure. right? Like, it, And they even say this in some of these press releases. They say, if you know, certain exemptions will be made for certain employees. And obviously the people who are really critical will not have to go into the office. And the whole trend the last few weeks, the thing I've been hearing about is this coffee badging thing. Have you heard about that, David? Coffee badging? No. So your company mandates that you come into the office a few days a week. And usually the way they do that is by tracking your badge scan when you go in through security. Because any company of a certain size now, they use these RFID badges to get people access into the building yep. and you, you scan it and they have records of this. So how do you enforce a return to office policy when you can't actually watch everybody? You just check their badge scans. So I have to go and scan once a week or two times a week or whatever. And so employees are gaming the system. They're going in after the rush hour, midday, they're scanning in, they're hanging out for a few hours, having coffee, chatting with coworkers, and then heading home before traffic builds they're and just then, doing all the great parts of working in an office. Right. Which actually Walker is not so bad. The community part. The community right. The part. community part is what I think is important. Um, I mean, I think there's like better ways to do that. Have monthly employee all day retreats to do team building or maybe do quarterly. That's what I see 
some of these virtual accounting firms doing is instead of spending money on an office that people are only going to be in for a few hours, that isn't very fun, use that money on paid for retreats and bring everyone to a central location every few months and do the team building that way. And then let people actually get their jobs done at home where they're more productive and less distracted in general. Yeah, just in office happy hours. And that's the only thing you have for the office. <laughs> hey, Tino, welcome back to the live stream. Tino says, my day job is working remotely for the National Cemetery Administration as of September 2023. I absolutely love it. Now, Tino, do you have to go in person to the cemetery or do you get to work from home? I'm guessing you get to work from home, but I, I'm, I'm curious to know, is it hybrid? Is it full-time in the office? Let us know. Steven says, time theft is still theft. I'm not really sure what you mean by that, Steven. Do you mean that if employees badge in and out and they don't really work, that they are stealing from their employers? But what if they get all their work done at home? Like, does it really matter? Is it really that important? Tino says, work from home. My whole team is remote. That's fantastic. So you get the benefit of what sounds like a very nice, secure job, steady thing, and you get to work remote forever. Like to of me, that, steady. People are going to keep dying. Like, the, the, even he, more people like, are going to be dying. He's literally in death and taxes. <laughs> yeah. Death and taxes. That's great. Uh, I have an article that ties back to you, then it's one of my top ones, um, because you relocated from California. High taxes to Arizona, lower taxes. I think some Ugh. of it was the pandemic. But it's so beautiful, David. Every time I file my taxes, I am like grateful. I am like happy. <laughs> so, so there's an article, and you could pull it up if you want. That was in the um, Tax Foundation. Oh, and... Is this one about the tax gap? No, this is one people moving. People moving. So there's a little bit of uh, data now from the IRS suggesting that people do move because of taxes. Um, and some of the stats that they uh, came out with this. So nine of the top 10 states with the largest population gains from 2019 to 2020 have no or low individual income taxes. So the states growing the most have no taxes, basically. Um, I, wonder, I wonder if that's just correlation or causation. So they, they reference that here, but there's just so much data pointing to this. Like, mm -hmm. And then they have some survey data uh, that's not tied for the IRS. And even that kind of indicates this because people will use phrases like, I want a lower house payment. Lower house payments is usually tied to- Oh yeah, lower property taxes. Lower My property, property taxes. taxes are half what they were in Los Angeles here. Yeah. Basically the other states that are growing uh, have a top marginal rate that's below the national median. And 16 of the 22 states that are shrinking are uh, above median top income tax oh, rates. Get this, David. Arizona for 2023 has a flat tax. It's like two point, I want to say yeah. 4%. It's wrong. That might be wrong, but it's, it's, that's great, right? Compare that to California where it's like, I don't know what, 10, 11%, I think last time I checked. Not the exact numbers, but you get the idea of the difference. In the, in the 25 best ranking states on the 2020 state business and climate index. So this is going to be more of like, where should I have my business be? Which states, mm -hmm. 20 of those 25 states have grown. And the 25 worst ranking states, 17 lost ta lost taxpayers. Yeah, and this is, has big ripple effects. For example, in 2021, California and New York lost 29 billion and 25 billion in AGI, respectively. While Florida gained 39 billion. 
Wow. So governments are really feeling this effect of, of this difference in money and the, the income gaps that are happening, or not income, but I guess you're the budget income gaps. This is happening. what's so great about our federal federalist system of government, which is really unique in the world. The fact that states can set different tax rates and attract Americans. We have competition among state governments to get us to come and work there and build businesses there. And if we didn't have this system of states and, and the federal government having different rights, like this wouldn't exist. This doesn't happen other places. And, so it, and this yeah. goes back to you. Uh, go back to episode number 200. If anybody wants to go listen to this, this is right after Trump lost the election. It goes back to my theory that this massive migration because that the Tax Cut and Jobs Act caused all these people in blue, the California to move to marginal states and tip them blue. And this is why I still insist Trump lost the election is his Tax Cut and Jobs Act. Uh, so people will listen to episode 200. Stacy in the live stream says, shout out to Washington State too. Stephen says, flat tax is not fair tax. Oh yeah, Stephen, I'm not saying it's fair. I'm just saying it's pretty great for me. <laughs> All right, moving on. Just for fun. Let's talk about Better Call Saul. You ever watch that show, David? Yes, but I have the, not finished it. <laughs> okay, I watched the first season or two, and then somehow I got derailed by it. So I need to go back and you know get back into it. But like, it's an amazing show. The prequel to Breaking Bad. Well, Better Call Saul was in a lawsuit. Liberty Tax sued the show Better Call Saul, and uh, basically because they got parodied in an episode, which I think is like generally something you don't want to do. If a TV show makes fun of your company, you know, suing them for trademark infringement is generally not like the best thing to do because it's just going to make people more aware of the show and the episode and they'll go watch it, right? So this lawsuit has been successfully defended. Uh, it was filed by Liberty Tax Service who claimed the show depicted a dubious tax firm that resembled their own. Liberty Tax failed to provide compelling evidence that viewers would confuse the fictional Sweet Liberty Tax Services with their own company. The episode in question, Carrot and Stick, featured Sweet Liberty operating from a trailer in the New Mexico desert using patriotic imagery and run by former clients of the show's main character, Saul Goodman. <laughs> Sweet Liberty Tax Services. Uh... This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Zoho. Zoho offers a unified and powerful suite of cloud software that can run your client's entire business as well as your firm. From accounting and bookkeeping to sales and marketing to HR and operations, Zoho has it all, including a CRM, expense tracking, bookkeeping, full office suite, a support ticket system, workflow automation, inventory, invoicing, subscription management, and a checkout app. And as your clients grow, they can integrate with over 50 plus apps that can run every aspect of their business, all from one login and one subscription called Zoho One. Zoho also has a partner program for accountants, bookkeepers, and consultants. As a Zoho advisor, you can list your firm on Zoho's partner directory leading to discovery by Zoho's over 85 million customers. Zoho advisors also get a dedicated partner account manager, early access to product releases, in-depth product training, certifications, and more. If you want to learn more about becoming a Zoho advisor, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash Zoho. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash Z-O-H-O. -O. 
All right, what's next, David? What else do we have? We have, or just a quick note that everybody should note, if you have clients that are at Chase Bank, Chase is requiring, they're changing their security for account verification. So in theory, all bank feeds are going to break across all your QuickBooks clients and probably your zero clients and anywhere else they're connected to Chase. And this is for their merchant services, Chase Payroll, all those bank accounts that you might have connected through. You're going to have to reconnect between now and uh, end of November. And this is an article that was in Insightful Accountant from uh, Bill Murphy. So just be aware that your clients might start having disconnects. Another headache. <laughs> yes. We're going to QuickBooks Connect next month. It's actually coming up real soon, in a couple of weeks, right, David? It's and sooner than we think, yes. That's going to be in Las Vegas at the Aria. And so this story caught my attention. Crazy embezzlement case at Aria Las Vegas. Hotel manager refunds $770,000 to his debit card. It's a pretty simple embezzlement case where this hotel manager, instead of refunding customers to their credit cards, simply put in their own debit card number and got up to $770,000 on their own debit card before anyone noticed. <laughs> and how many? How much time or when did this take place? Let's see. The individual drew suspicion from a coworker after living it up a little too large. So it must have been for a, quite a while, right? If that's, and it's funny, that is how people get caught. If you're going to do fraud, don't go out and buy the expensive car and take the trips and like that, you show the money and you get caught. This is like, anyone who's watched The Wire knows you, you don't show the money, right? <laughs> And of course, this is the sort of thing where there's going to be a trail, right? Like the who does people who do this don't really think ahead, do they? Most fraudsters don't really think ahead. So let's see the details here. The defendant was an operations manager at the hotel, had the authority to issue refunds for reservations and customer satisfaction. Apparently, you know, we're talking some lacking internal controls here. The amount of refunds he processed is 209 with a combined total of $773,000. So it's about $3,700 per refund. And the refunds were placed into his personal checking account, always using the same debit card. And the defendant lived a very flashy lifestyle that drew attention. So I'm guessing that it went on for a while because the people who are receiving these large refunds, maybe they were wealthier. And so they didn't notice if they never got the refund. Like, how do you, how do you deal with that? Right. If I didn't get my refund as a customer, I'd be calling in and wondering, and you'd think that would have caused him to get caught. Well, sometimes, I mean, like, there's probably some due diligence people that are on top of these things, but sometimes you assume the guy, like, oh, I issued your refund. Oh, thanks. And then I move on with my life and I never checked if the refund came out. Yeah. So, I, I find articles like that always kind of funny. I've always felt like this is true with banks too. They, they always will cover on the news when like an armed robber robs $2,000 from a bank. <laughs> but if there's like some hack and like millions are stolen, they're never going to put that on the news. They don't want mm -hmm. people to cause a panic. And I think it's funny that Aria was part of MGM Grand. This article comes out about this guy stealing $700,000, whoop-de-doo, when they've been um, losing millions and millions and millions. And who knows if they even paid for the ransomware to get unhacked. They were completely ransomwareed up. But, you know, in the grand scheme, like this guy barely did anything to that hotel. All right, let's talk about other organizations that lack internal controls. 
Let's talk about the Maryland Health Department. According to an article in the Washington Post, an audit of the Maryland Department of Health revealed that the organization, the department, failed to properly track federal reimbursements during the pandemic, resulting in over $1 billion in unaccounted funds. $1.4 billion is unaccounted for. Now, that doesn't mean that Maryland didn't receive the funds from the federal government or that the funds have gone missing necessarily, that they were embezzled. It just means that the internal controls were so loose that they can't account for it. They can't tell the auditors where it went. Can you imagine? I kind of can imagine. I could even paint a picture a little bit of the city of Baltimore's finance problems. <laughs> Uh, Which happens to be in Maryland. Okay. I'll let you finish first. No, no, that's really all I got. I mean, other than saying that the governor, Wes Moore, expressed significant concerns about the financial documentation handling at the Department of Health during the previous administration. So it was during the previous administration. So the current administration saying it's not our fault. Yeah. So I obviously we talked about Workday a couple of weeks back. And then because of this, you know, you, you, you once you start like bucketing or liking articles or looking at articles, they surface more and more, right? It's kind of... So, well, for those who didn't hear that story about Workday, the summary is that, uh, was it Iowa, the state of Iowa? State of Iowa could not produce their financials because of Workday, because the universities rolled out Workday and they it's been a botched rollout. Ohio State as well, they pulled back on their rollout. Different, you know, so people are, a lot of schools are having problems with this, but what's interesting, I'm finding with this research, what's great about these ERP rolls out, rollouts for schools and cities and governments, you get to see it all. Like it's all public. Like you don't know about rollouts, ERP rollouts that fail with companies, private companies or corporations, right? But right, all these have, right. it's all made public, right? The problems. So anyways, we'll get back to the city of Baltimore. So they, it's funny, there was an article from uh, early October, so October 11th, about how they owe a lot of people money. So this is on the uh, AP side. We owe people money, but you know we're getting it paid, and and they're claiming that their transition to workday is helping them get through this backlog of money that they owe people. And the city peaked in 2020 with more than 4,000 late invoices, defined as over 30 days late. But now they've decreased that to half of that. And another part of this article mentioned that it was the city spending board approved the switch to the new system with more than $13.5 million contract that would run from 2019 to 2024. So, so they, they had to shell out, you know, $13.5 million for this. Well, yesterday or day before yesterday, two days ago, there's different news articles coming out now about how they have a growing collections problem and they wrote off $45 million in bad debts and they blamed Workday. <laughs> for this their botched rollout of Workday. Oh, man. So on the, the, on the AP side, it seems to be going okay, but on the AR side, it's going bad. And they kind of painted, uh, in the inspector general released a report after this investigation, but here's a great example of this. And some of it is probably ERP rollout, some of it's incompetence, but for example, the gas company needs to run a gas line underneath the row, road. So they have to cut the road, right? You need a permit to do that. Well, these permits, they didn't have a way to get these permits into the system to properly track and bill. The permitting software didn't talk to the other software. And then on top of that, Baltimore Gas and Electric, they had a policy that you have to email us invoices. And the 
accounting department, BAPS, which is the Baltimore Accounting and Payroll System, they were manually mailing them invoices. So of course they weren't getting paid. And so this added up after so many years in the statute of limitations, they're just having to write off all this debt over and over again, all over the place. And a lot of it is these systems aren't working together. And then they, they, she flat out called out. Some of it is new, the new system of workday. Some of it's, um, they didn't, sometimes they send it to the wrong contractors that weren't even on the permit. And then some of it's just, they're blaming short staffing, but these have real effects. So one, one of the things that happen is a, a vendor that supplies calcium oxide, also known as quicklime. Do you know what that's used for? Isn't that used for like uh, getting rid of bodies? Well, <laughs> that's not, that's on Breaking Bad. Okay. <laughs> No, but they need it because it pulls out lead and other contaminants from drinking water. Mm. And bills weren't getting paid, and the supplier was not going to provide City of Baltimore this very needed chemical. Wow. And so, th- so these effects of the bad accounting, bad bookkeeping, it all just really like rolls into real, uh, real issues. And one of the other things that they had, because they're calling out like stacked, these articles start to call out other things. Apparently, a few weeks ago, the um, IG reported that the Baltimore City schools failed to collect the retirement contributions from 500 people's paychecks, leaving a $5 million gap in the general that had to be recouped from general school funds to make up for that retirement thing. So it's just a lot of botched rollouts are bad. And, and I actually, we were at Sweet World and I talked to somebody about Workday and, and a top 10 firm rolled out Workday and they had some issues with time tracking, made it hard to bill clients for their time. Well, so. Workday is never going to be a sponsor. <laughs> I think that's what we've established in this episode. Man. Yeah, I, I, it's, it's just every, it's, it's interesting how they're calling out their Workday migrations as a reason for their problems. And you're seeing this a lot, uh, hmm. more than I think we should, I guess. I don't know. Well, let's talk about some other embarrassing news. Here's a headline <laughs> that caught my attention, given the talent crisis and the issue of low starting salaries in accounting. The headline is, accounting firm apologizes for paying trainee below minimum wage. Now, this is in the UK, not in America, thankfully. This is a graduate's experience at KPMG from the University of Manchester. He joined KPMG as an audit associate four years ago and worked there for just over a year auditing investment banks. The ex-audit associate left the firm. It was, uh, this is interesting. It it says KPMG, but then it says Grant Thornton. So I'm actually not sure which for, okay, this is Grant Thornton. Okay. So he was working at Grant Thornton. I don't know why KPMG is in there. That might be a mistake. Uh, Left Grant Thornton because he was burnt out. Uh, a letter he received from the firm 12 months after he left explains why. After looking back through its timesheet data and considering his flexible benefit choices, Grant Thornton said it had realized that he'd earned less than the minimum wage for the time he'd spent there. It sent him £100 for the inconvenience and promised to make up the difference. The UK minimum wage is currently £10.42 an hour. So that's like $12.64. So like, hey, we're sorry we did this. Here's an extra 100 bucks, 100 pounds. And then we're going to figure out the difference and then eventually get that to you. The fact that they acknowledged it. So he moved on a year later. Did he even know? No, I, I, he, I guess they were doing an audit or something internally. It's, I'm just guessing here. And they realized that they had 
violated the minimum wage law, which you don't want to do as an employer in the UK, I imagine. I, I bet there are some steep penalties for that. And so they rectified it. But uh, right, so, so, so he's an accountant, though. Yeah, he was an audit associate. Audit associate, yeah. which in theory is an accountant. He should be. Can you we would agree hope on that. this? Yes. So, so, so I'm just trying to like wrap my head around this. So you're an accountant and you didn't notice that you weren't being paid the proper amount? I, I, I'm, well, you know, David, this isn't my our brain. leaders keep telling us we don't do it for the money, right? You know? <laughs> <laughs> well played. Well played. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Keeper. By combining client communications, file review, reporting, and your task management, Keeper has everything you need to run your bookkeeping or cast practice. Keeper is an all-in-one app that allows you, your team, and your clients to easily collaborate to make your monthly close as efficient as possible. Starting with a beautiful custom-branded client portal optimized for bookkeeping work, your client can answer questions you have about uncategorized transactions, allowing you to categorize and automatically post them to QuickBooks Online correctly, all without ever leaving Keeper. Via the month-end file review feature to surface transactions that may not be posted correctly, and by providing the perfect customized report that each client may need, Keeper can highlight the value that your firm provides clients. Keeper's built-in task management ensures nothing falls through the cracks, and it includes time tracking so you can see where you and your team spends their time. With Keeper's 1099 manager, you can easily review each client's list of vendors, email address, physical address, tax ID, and the amount paid, and from the same screen, even request W9s for any vendors that you're missing information for. No more jumping between screens or browser tabs. Keeper has a very affordable and clear pricing model that starts at only $8 a month. To learn more about why thousands of bookkeepers and accountants trust Keeper to manage their month-end close and to get 20% off your first three months by using code CAP20, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash keeper. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash K-E-E-P-E-R. So, I brought this up because this is something we're seeing here in the United States, not necessarily paying less than minimum wage, although it's possible that when you actually calculate how many hours you work and how much you get paid, it might not be that much more for many entry-level staff working at firms that are overworking them. According to a survey that the AICPA does every couple of years, the MAP survey, it's the National Management of an Accounting Practice Survey, Management of an Accounting Practice, MAP, MAP. So the 2023 survey is out and public and CPA Trendlines got the data and did analysis of it. And this is something that CPA Trendlines does a good job of. They look at these reports and really dig into them and don't just publish the press releases that you get, <laughs> which tend to paint a rosier picture than maybe in the data. And this is the problem here is that, to quote CPA Trendlines, although the average base salary for new entrants to the profession increased by $5,000 to $50,000 in the fiscal year 2022, this still lags behind comparable pay in fields such as engineering. So $50,000 a year is the average base salary for new entrants to the profession. And this has not changed much in decades. And like I, I, people were getting paid this much 10 years ago or more. And then you look at the cost of inflation. And I just have a hard time understanding how we attract people into the profession when the starting salaries are, are that low. Yeah. 
You know, and and the thing is that revenue is up nine point one percent from twenty twenty two to twenty twenty one. Average compensation for different categories of positions within the profession increased between 5 and 14% compared to fiscal year 2020. The use of value pricing, such as subscription-based services, continued to rise. Hourly billing as a share of revenue has dropped from 70% to 65%. So that is encouraging. Two-thirds of firms are using hourly billing, but a third are not. That's amazing. Well, that, 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 that's, that's, that's starting to hit a decent, one-third's decent amount of people. And, and I should correct what I said. It's not one-third of firms. Okay. It's one-third of billings in firms are, for, are on a value-priced or subscription-priced oh, or okay. non-hourly so basis. So in a, in a typical firm, two-thirds are hourly and one-third is not. So there's room to improve there. Median hourly billing rates rose to $159 from $137, a 16% increase. And like I said, uh, there was a median growth rate of 9.1% in net revenue over the previous year, which eclipses the 4.2% growth rate from two years ago. But what I don't like about the way they report these numbers is they don't adjust for inflation. And I think you really should adjust for inflation because in a high inflation environment, obviously, revenue is going to go up. Because inflation, right? Yeah. It's not necessarily actual, like, real growth. So I, I would love to see these numbers if they were adjusted that way. And we really should be doing that. I don't know why they do that. Net partner compensation, profit on a per-partner basis, climbed 9% from 207000 to 225000 226000 in 2022. So partner comp is going up 9%. But then starting salaries, fifty you know fifty thousand dollars on average. And the question is, how do we attract people into the profession if those are the starting salaries? You promise them, like look at the salaries partners get. This is why you should join, join now. Get in now. But you have to wait on average ten to fifteen years to become a partner, and that's the other problem. Is people don't want to stick around and wait that long when they have a lot of options. Uh, I couldn't. I couldn't do it. Well, here's something hopeful about the accounting talent crisis, Purdue University has seen a spike in accounting enrollment. Now, David, you reported a couple weeks ago about some of the efforts they're making, they're doing- well, they're, They go tailgating at football games. And I was like, this is a good way to get more accounting students. And they they encourage them to, you know, it's uh, it's 40 existing or 100 existing accountants and 100 accounting students. And they, they do a big 200 person tailgate, tell them to bring the resumes, meet people in, in the industry. Now, I was skeptical about that because I'm, I'm thinking, you know, accountants are smart. You're not going to get them to become accountants just by doing tailgating. That's like the, that's like slightly, it's like a little bit, that's like a pizza party with alcohol, right? <laughs> so, but there was a follow-up here in accounting today, or I don't know if they did a story on that originally. They did a story on this increase in enrollment um, as reported by Purdue. So here are the numbers. Uh, they're... Enrollment in Intermediate Accounting 1 grew from 101 in 2019 to 297 in 2023. That's huge. It's like they tripled it in four years. And in Intermediate Accounting 2, they went from 102 to 227. So they've like doubled that. So they're still losing people, obviously, from Intermediate 1 to 2, but like 
overall, like that's good, right? Like doubling the number of people that have taken intermediate two or that are taking it is great. And their master's program enrollments have grown, have like doubled. These are small numbers, obviously. Like their master's went from 18 to 45. But this is being hailed as a model. And something they've done strikes me as actually really, really smart. They have created a new class. And the class is called Careers in Accounting and Finance. It's required for accounting majors. The course features guest speakers, often Purdue accounting alumni, who discuss the diverse career opportunities that an accounting degree can offer. So it's not just go to Big Four and do audit yeah. and do tax. It's, hey, you can go work for a company. You can go work for a small firm. You can do all these cool things. And I really do believe that absent any change to the 150-hour rule or anything like that, like this is the way you get people to want to be accountants is you show them the non-Big Four path. Let's be honest. The Big Four are the ones that are killing accounting right now because those roles are underpaid, overworked, and really awful work most of the time. Yeah. Like it's not great. And the Big Four can't change. They can't figure out how to do it. And so if we funnel people into that meat grinder that is the big four, what do we expect? They're going to quit and they're not going to want to be accountants anymore if that's all they think accounting is. So we got to figure out how to get people to know about all the cool roles in the small firms that you and I talk to all the time, the people that are at QuickBooks Connect. Can't wait to see that. So this is great. I think this is something every accounting program should do. Create a class like Careers in Accounting and Finance and show students all the other options. And of course, they're doing these networking events, you know, Purdue football games. Interestingly, Purdue has also reduced their tuition in recent years to make the extra credit hours for CPA license more affordable. But uh, it's funny, there's actually a quote about 150 in here from one of the professors who says, well, there's not a quote, but it just says, the other professors don't believe the problem with attracting students to accounting is because of the 150-hour rule for earning a CPA license, pointing out that the rule has been around for about 30 years, depending on the state. But then they also say that reducing the cost helped to increase enrollment. Yeah. So, like, you can't have it both ways, right? Like, 150 is about cost and time. So if reducing the cost helped increase enrollment, it says something about 150. So you said they now have 45 people in their MAC program. Yeah, up from 18. So so an article that caught my eye, Seton Hall has now launched a master's program in professional accounting and analytics. And they go on to, you know, how convenient. It comprises of 30 credits, you know, <laughs> to help them hit the 150-hour rule. It actually, you know, it has that in here, educational requirement. Um, but if you're saying 45, like, how is a MAC program even viable for a university? Like, how do you, how do you oh, hire the, the professors, pay the professors in only for 45 students? Like, how is this a, a viable business model for a university? Even, I mean, I don't know. I don't if know how the enrollments are declining. Work. How could you even justify rolling out a new Mac program at a at a college? I don't. You can't. I I think the uh, a bunch of them will close. Sharon Lassar said that, right? Yeah, like the, Colorado, the yeah the ones that don't create value beyond just getting you your thirty hours. Uh, accountants are going to figure out how to do this, and we're seeing these sites pop up online sites where you can get your thirty hours the easiest, cheapest way. Um, what was it like CPA credits is one of them. So yeah, I think people are wising up to this and, and they're going to water it down anyway, right? Like with the AICPA working with, um, is it 
they're working with a university to create this, you know, experience, learn and earn program where they're creating online classes that you're going to take while you're working. I mean, once people have that, why would they go do an in-person Mac, right? Like a low quality in-person yeah. masters of accountancy. So all the, like basically the low quality programs, the low quality in-person full-time programs will go away and you'll just have the, you know, the good ones that provide value beyond the 30 hours. And then you'll have these online programs, which are watered down that probably I don't think will create a ton of value, which will be cheaper, which is not the ideal solution. The best thing would just be to get rid of it and yeah. let people not do that crap. Because when people are trying to take online classes while they're doing their first year and they're getting underpaid as staff, like the, it's not a good mix. Yeah. The, uh, the, one of the things with the Seton Hall, it says, looks like they're going to let people, students choose to attend evening classes in person or join remotely. So they're giving a little bit of flexibility in there. Ooh. Well, David, that's all the time we've got for this week. If our listeners want to write a review, please help us out. Go do that on Apple Podcasts. Uh, you can also send us an email. We are the accounting podcast at earmark.me. And you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Blake T. Oliver. How about you, David? I'm just on all the socials, just uh, at David Leary. Thanks, everyone, for joining us this week. Hope you liked it, and we'll see you around here next week. Thanks, everyone. Time for the classifieds. Stop settling for slow payments and say hello to the future of AR with Forwardly. Accounts that use Forwardly can receive payments in less than 22 seconds. Yes, under 22 seconds via the newly launched FedNow network. And if your bank or a client's bank doesn't yet use FedNow, Forwardly will send the payment via same-day ACH for free. To get paid in under 22 seconds, go to forwardly.com. That's forwardly.com. Most firm owners are busier than they want to be because they feel like they have to work long hours to keep their firms running. But according to CPA Ryan Lozanis, that's not necessary. Ryan built a multi-seven-figure firm that didn't require him to work nights or weekends. And just five years after starting his firm, Ryan sold it to a major international organization for a hefty profit. His secret is a special six-part system. And right now he's teaching 700 plus busy firm owners to implement this system in their own firms so they can scale revenue and spend more time with family and friends. To learn more about Ryan's special six-part system that lets firm owners grow their revenue and their free time, go to futurefirmaccelerate.com slash CAP. That's futurefirmaccelerate.com slash CAP. Want to get the word out about your newsletter, webinar, party, Facebook group, podcast, ebook, job posting, or that fancy Excel macro you just created? Why not let the listeners of the Cloud Accounting Podcast know by running a classified ad? Hit the show notes for the link to get more info.